0: From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, episode six, Rodan. Fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster
1: movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Churchill, and I'm Nathan Marchand. In this
0: episode, we'll be covering the
1: 1956 film Rodan, or alternatively, the title is Giant Monster of the Sky Radon. Yep, this was Toho's first foray into creating a new kaiju that was not in a Godzilla movie. And, notably, it was also their first kaiju film filmed in color.
0: The related topics we'll be discussing in this episode are Japan's role in the Korean War and Japan's history with the United Nations. Like in every episode, we will begin with a short description of the film and then move on to opinion
1: and discussion.
0: You're listening
1: to Kaiju Vision Radio. Rodan is a force of nature. He is a pteranodon revived due to a diastrophism in the Earth's crust, likely caused by nuclear testing. He is joined by a second Rodan later, probably its mate. The meganula, singular is meganulan, are ancient dragonfly larvae larger than humans, although they aren't kaiju. Rodan feeds on them like a bird eating worms. Shigeru is a young Colliery engineer engaged to a young woman named Kyo. He's working hard to provide until his livelihood is disrupted by the monsters. Kyo is a kind and emotional woman who spends much of her time at Shigeru's side, caring for him or offering support. Dr. Kashiwagi is a biologist brought in by the local police to investigate the strange happenings occurring at the mine. The human plotline is largely part of the unfolding mystery of the goings-on in the coal mine and Mount Aso. Once Rodan appears, the main characters take a backseat to to the action while the military tries to stop Rodan. Once Rodan appears, the JASDF uses planes to attack Rodan in the air. They down him in the water, and it reduces his supersonic speed. During the battle in Fukuoka, the military is unable to stop the Rodans. The issue is resolved when the JSDF shells Mat which draws the Rodans out and causes a volcanic eruption. One Rodan succumbs to the flames and falls into the lava, where it is quickly joined by its mate. The screenplay, written by Takeshi Kimura, has a rather dense plot. Regardless, the story itself is relatively simple and is solved by conventional military methods. Like Gojira, production levels are high in this film, and the effects look quite good. I employed many of the techniques he pioneered and used in Gojira—puppetry, soupmation, miniatures, etc.—in order to bring the much different titular monster to life, such as wind machines to create the hurricane-force gales from Rodan's wings and the sonic booms he creates. The movie is relatively dark and a bit horrific, but it isn't as bleak and poetic as Gojira. On the fantasy versus reality spectrum, this movie again shows us extraordinary events in a realistic setting. Though this is an entirely different kind of kaiju, the film doesn't take that many risks. The film is serious, dark, and at times horrific, so it mostly reinforces the stylistic elements of the original Godzilla and Godzilla Raids again. The film was intended to appeal to the new kaiju film audience, created by the success of Godzilla. By using a vastly different sort of creature, they offered the audience something new, thereby increasing their chances of success. The film was successful in Japan when it came out. When released in the U.S., the dubbed version of the film grossed $500,000 in in the New York metro area, which broke records. It is also the first Japanese film to get generally released on the West Coast. It also got lots of advertising on TV and later on cable networks. While the alterations made to this film were similar to those made in Godzilla Raids Again, this film fares much better. Ten minutes of the film, mostly small edits made to multiple scenes, were cut from the film while others were re-edited. Some of Akira Fukubei's score was replaced with stock music. A prologue showing stock footage of nuclear bomb tests was added. A voiceover narration for Shigeru, provided by Key Luke, co-star of the Charlie Chan films, was added. The movie sets up the conflict between the ancient kaiju and the world they wake up to. At the end of the film, when the Rodans are killed, they are cast as almost tragic figures, like they're holdovers from the prehistoric era and they can't survive in modern times. Like with Godzilla Raids Again, there is a subtle anti-nuclear theme, but it is secondary to the plight of the Japanese working class. There's also a potent sense of powerlessness when faced with the fury of nature. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film at hand. So, Brian, what do you think of Rodan? Rodan. I know one thing, and that's the fact that I like Rodone
0: as a name way better than Rodan. Rodone just sounds better, and I think I've heard the Japanese version enough of them. I've heard them say that word enough. I'm like, oh, wow, Rodone sounds cool. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Yeah. I like the film. It's, it's good. I think probably the biggest complaint that people might have might be the fact that it's a little slow at the beginning.
1: It is, but I actually enjoyed the the pacing of it at the beginning. It had a nice mystery that was built into it and also gave you a chance to really get into the nitty-gritty of the world that's being presented here because this doesn't take place in a huge Japanese metropolis. It takes place in the Japanese countryside in a small town. It's a very different sort of location than you would usually see in a kaiju film. And as someone who grew up in the rural lands of indiana i actually kind of appreciated seeing that
0: i think the positive thing that really counterweights the sort of slowness to the beginning of the movie is the atmosphere there's a lot of great atmosphere in this movie one of the parts that i like is right at the beginning when they actually do the 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 sound that rodan makes during the credits and they and they show that it's like an anim, it's not like an animation, but it's like that weird kind of colored animation that they have going on with, with the title sequence. It sort of gets you into the, whatever this thing is, it's, it's fierce and weird to be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sets up the sort of seriousness to it. It sets up the, I think some of the horror aspects to it. Cause there are a few things that are Kind of horrific.
1: Yeah, actually, at the beginning. Too, yeah, actually, especially. that was one of the things that you're, you're talking about atmosphere, and I was I was realizing that in a lot of ways this is this is a horror movie. It's a different sort of horror than we saw in Godzilla. The the horror in Godzilla was more in the after effects of what was going on and seeing the carnage and the destruction and kind of the dread that went along with it. Whereas in this one, the horror was uh, especially with the Mega Nulon, was more Personal is a bit more visceral, and you may hate me for making this sort of comparison, but in a lot of ways, I was getting a similar vibe from this that I would get in, say, the original alien you know, with these very confined spaces and these mysterious creatures. We don't see what they are, we see what they can do, and it's terrifying. But you know, in the mystery that goes along with it, we don't know what's going on or what they are.
0: Yeah, it it does have some of that. I was actually going to mention that, funny enough. Uh, there was. Great minds think alike. The, there was that that the beginning of Alien. It has a lot of time there where where you don't know, you know. I think newer audiences want to bail on it just because it's, it's kind of slow at the start. But uh, to that I say, you know, you got to be kidding me. The setting this thing up is so important. I mean, that's a lot of what the first Alien movie was about because you didn't get to see it very much, and so you had to have a lot of atmosphere but at least we get to see Rodan once Rodan appears and the once Rodan appears the the action really doesn't let up but yeah. it's, it's so it's like a like really slow beginning and then just
1: everything explodes once
0: once it really gets going
1: which is actually a common storytelling structure in a lot of Japanese films and stories where there's you know there's this slow build up an exposition, and then this very intense uh, climax, and then a very fast resolution.
0: Mm-hmm. The color added a lot. Like I said in the last episode on Godzilla Raids Again, I was happy that this was the last black and white film, because we get to see all
1: this glorious color. I, yeah, It's interesting, because in my most recent rewatch, I kept thinking to myself i don't remember the color being that important in this movie certainly once we get to the 60s the the color is even more important but i don't remember being that big a deal in rodan and then as i was watching it i thought oh how did i forget about all of this (laughs) i mean yeah it's not as bright as the you know as the 60s movies were but still i mean you know the colors do pop in this
0: yeah and the color is good the miniatures look good I think for the year that the movie was made in, I think it was pretty impressive for when it came out. The first time I saw this, it, I was uh, probably in my early teens, maybe, and it was on TBS because I, th- I think the Rodan was one of the movies that got really shown a lot on cable during those years.
1: And you're talking about the dub
0: version, right? Yeah, the one with the narration that was so uh, atmospheric. I think it's one of the better narrations from. Any of the American versions,
1: I haven't watched the dub version in a while, so I don't quite—at least not in in its entirety. So I don't quite remember what the narration did. I do remember being far less intrusive and obnoxious than the narration in Godzilla raids again, though.
0: Yeah, and it was the character Shigeru that was talking in the narrations, and he—the actor—really acted as if it was him, and I think it. It worked really well. One thing I thought was interesting was right at the beginning, there are the scientists who are monitoring the earthquakes and everything, and they mentioned global warming.
1: I know. My most recent rewatch, I thought, we're talking about global warming in the mid-50s in Japan. I didn't realize that this was even that big of a concept back in the 50s or maybe it was a new thing that they were talking about they even relatively ha- yeah they even have a a denier a climate cha- you know, a climate cha- but a global warming denier because one guy says "Oh, pff, it can't be true <laughs> it's, it's like everything that we you know that people talk about now is there in this movie from 60 years ago mm-hmm. and obviously
0: japan has a lot to worry about with global warming like especially as far as like the sea level rising part and that's actually, I think, what they talked about was the, the uh, polar caps melting, right? Mm, yeah, that's what yeah. it was.
1: And trust me, I know all about those fears. I just finished reading Japan Sinks, the novel. Yes, I've, I've read it too. It's a
0: very good book. And anybody who's interested in the tokusatsu genre, you should uh, definitely either read the book or if you can uh, get a hold of the movie, watch the movie. Not the American version, but the, the full Japanese version. As far as favorite scenes, I, I have a couple. The first favorite that I have is the scene with the couple that's on their honeymoon. And they are taking their pictures. And then she does this amazing, great look. Where I, It's one of those things that just gets stuck in my head about like greatest people seeing kaiju moments. And I think that's my, my, that might be the biggest
1: one and the the other thing that makes that scene interesting is that unlike with Godzilla it is strongly implied that uh, Rodan eats humans and cattle because they talk about there being missing cattle as well and we never see those honeymooners again yeah we just see their shoes that's it well and the thing the other the other thing that makes that scene effective is we don't actually see Rodan in that scene it's an incredible use of minimalism to generate fear, I would say.
0: Yeah, and it, I think it hits home for the fact that, you know, Rodan is so fast and he can just fly by and, and get them and, you know, blink of an eye, it's over with. And so it's it brings home that, that certain amount
1: of danger from the sky. One of my favorite scenes weirdly enough, it doesn't involve Rodan. I'm actually rather fond of the the scene in the mine when Shigeru kills one of the Mega Nulon with the mine cart. Because, because it's like his one great hero moment. And for some odd reason, call me crazy, I was getting flashbacks to Temple of Doom for some reason when I was watching that. Even though, you know, they're totally unrelated movies, have nothing to do with each other. But I have a feeling if I was Shigeru, I'd be bragging about that little move for, for, you know, for a long time after that. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty dramatic action. Another
0: favorite scene that I have is about, it's the one where the one plane starts following Radon in the sky and he reports it to his superiors on the ground. And as he's following Radon, then Radon does this one eighty, and completely just knocks him out of the sky. But the, I think the the aftermath of that is cool when they have the bloodied helmet that's there on the desk. But the I think the whole scene's put together really well. I mean, you have these kind of vapor trails or whatever it is that Rodan is emitting, as well as the plane. And then they have this nice, uh, really tense, marching kind of music just that only takes place during that scene. And that's the only time I've ever heard that music in any kaiju film. And it's really... It like like ramps up the tension quite a bit. I I think that's one of the coolest little parts, like at the beginning, especially where they show like a like a big zoomed out picture of of the path that Rodan has been taking. And there's that sort of chemtrails that are coming out.
1: Yeah, I I especially love how the pilot is saying that his target is being clocked at Mach 1.5. I have no idea how Rodan can fly that fast without some form of propulsion, but hey, kaiju movie pseudoscientific physics, you just go with it. Also, Brian, the, this scene is notable for one other reason, and that's actually, this is the part of the movie that most directly relates back to the initial inspiration for the film, which was described by screenwriter Kuro Namu as being inspired by the story of Captain Thomas F. Mantrell, who in 1948 spotted a UFO uh, he was a pilot for the Kentucky Air Guard and then followed it and then his plane crashed it's one of the more noteworthy UFO sightings in the you know in the United States uh, in the you know the history of UFO sightings another one of my favorite scenes is actually the climax on Mount Aso when both of the Rodans are present the volcano is erupting you watch the first one succumb to the to the fumes from the volcano and then fall into the lava and then it is followed by its mate and it it's weird i mean it's something that you see a lot particularly with honda's kaiju films where even though they are most definitely the antagonists and they are destructive creatures they become sympathetic at the end and this one you could almost interpret it as being that, you know, the the, the first Rodan succumbs and dies through natural causes. But then you could say the second one actually throws itself down there with its mate because it simply can't exist without it.
0: It's like an emotional thing that happens at the very end. And the narrating in the American version of this drives the point home even more. And really, uh, really pours on the, the sentimentality about it. And it's almost like there's this message of, oh, you know, they can't survive in, in this
1: new world that's around us. Just dawned on me that that's actually not unlike the, the Ray Bradbury short story that inspired Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, the creature is much the same way. It's looking for, in that, although in that case, it was looking for a mate and then found out that it had missed millions of years of history and the world had changed around it.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting parallel. I think it makes sense. What did you think of
1: Rodan's destructive breath? To be honest, I barely remember it. And from what I understand, it was done as, you know, really only because it was done in Godzilla. But I think it only ever happens for the Showa era, Rodan, in this movie. And I think it only happens once right and so
0: you but you've i've noticed it many times now where it opens its mouth and it like breathes out this uh air
1: gas of some kind yeah, yeah, yeah it doesn't ignite I mean, it, like, or anything it, i'm it, not like,
0: even sure it's supposed to be fire i don't know i don't think it's supposed to be fire i think it's just air maybe and it's just adding to the the hurricane force winds that he can generate with his wings because he like, can I, blow
1: really hard, or something.
0: I, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if Rodan's having giant lungs or anything like that. And like they never brought this back at any other point when we have Rodan, and and so in any of these other movies. And so I'm not really sure what the deal with that was. I, I I'm assuming that it was meant to be like a hurricane breath, sort of blowing air. Thing, so that's but. the
1: only thing that really makes sense because that was the, the Showa era. Rodan's biggest motif was was winds.
0: There's an interesting argument towards the end about how they're going to make Mount also erupt. And one of the guys there says, it's an extremely bad idea. It's destructive. You guys are literally using the military to make a volcano erupt. And then all of the dangers of that eruption will occur. Well, then the military convinces him that the destructive potential represented by the two Rodans is worse than the volcano and the damage that it could cause. And he kind of has this look on his face like, oh, well, I, mean, I guess you're right. And that ends the discussion. But it is definitely a valid point. I mean, you're you're blowing up Mount Aso, which is one of Japan's biggest volcanoes, and you're making it erupt on purpose.
1: Yeah, that was something I was thinking about, because that debate doesn't last very long from what I can remember watching the movie. And once that guy has his point countermanded, he was just done. I have a feeling if this was a modern film, that would have been a much longer and more heated argument, with a lot of things going back and forth, and they may have actually even presented the military as being in the wrong about it. I don't know, because there's a heavy amount of environmental concerns in a lot of modern films. So, Brian, what did you think of that little montage about halfway through the movie that is actually showing a lot of other countries and cities reacting to the emergence of Rodan.
0: Well, it made me think about like long-range bombers and spy planes is what it made me think of, or that, or maybe UFOs. And it was like this, well, there's something up in the sky and we're going to, we have to notice this and we wonder what nation, you know, if anything, is this craft with? Because obviously there's a lot of, Going on in that region, but spy planes—that that thing didn't really get all that big until the early '60s, with with stuff like the the U2 and the SR-71 and those kinds of vessels. Well, I think it's interesting that it showed a whole bunch of different nations in the neighborhood all having to give
1: their own report on it. Well, and I thought it was interesting in that you're you're being presented. With I guess you could say representatives of nations who were both friendly and unfriendly toward Japan. I mean, you see Beijing, you see an American serviceman in Okinawa. And I just thought that was interesting. I kind of wondered if it was a bit of an expression of Honda's humanism and pacifism, where he's showing how this is not only affecting Japan, but it's making ripples all across the world.
0: I think it increases
1: Rodan's
0: presence for sure it adds to the idea that rodan can get just about anywhere he wants and that the problem is more than just in japan
1: uh, that it could be a threat to that whole region it's one of the rare instances i think at least in the Showa era where you get the impression that the kaiju are a threat to more than just japan
0: yeah it is a little bit more internationalist in that respect because you really don't see much of that in gojira or godzilla rays again
1: as we mentioned in our description this is a very dense movie we only talked about three primary characters for the most part but there are a lot of supporting characters in this movie it has a fairly large cast it's just that shigeru and his fiance Kyo, and then dr kashiwagi are just the the primary movers in the plot But you know, there's a police chief. There are the other miners who are you know in the mine in that town, or friends with Shigeru and all of that. And some of Kyo's friends are in this. It's just there are so many characters in it. It's so dense that it made it a little bit difficult for me to really latch onto somebody and. I mean, the characters are good, but they aren't nearly as strong as, you know, as Sarazawa and Emiko and Ogata and Yamane were from, uh, from Gojira. But, you know, I'm not going to fault it too hard for that. I mean, with three screenwriters, I'm not surprised this, uh, things like that actually were going on. But uh, then uh, going back to Kashiwagi. So in this case, you have Akihiko Harata again. Yeah, we saw him as Dr. Sarazawa in Gojira playing another scientist although in this case he's more of a yamane type of a scientist so it's a nice role reversal which is but even you know being in a sort of a yamane role he's his primary purpose is to sit there and exposit about the monsters for the most part well that's the thing like we have a lot of
0: characters at the start of this but then like an hour into it we're pretty much done with them and then we just end up with heavy special effects and monster plot and the military side of it and we don't really come back to these characters as the movie progresses they kind of take a back
1: seat to the action that unfolds i would also like to note that as far as i know this is toho's first kaiju movie to feature a giant egg which would become a frequently used trope Especially in the '60s, you'll see it in in Mothra and in Son of Godzilla, most notably. Also, there is a nuclear connection between, uh, to Rodan, like in Gojira, but it's really just presented as a theorized origin for the uh, for Rodan, as opposed to being a huge part of the theme and uh, you know, of the film. There is an anti-nuclear theme. A theme it's incredibly subtle, and in this case. It's just presented as a possible origin for Rodan, and then it's just kind of dropped and never really talked about again. Uh, one more thing, Brian. What did you think of that the amnesia uh, subplot that got thrown in there? I don't know. If I was the one that read the initial
0: draft of this, I would try to find a way to get rid of it.
1: I have to agree with you. That's why I'm, I'm thinking that that might have also been a product of the fact that this had three screenwriters, because... It didn't really feel natural to the story. It felt like a plot device because they, you know, they wanted Shigeru to see Rodan hatch from the egg, but they couldn't figure out how to structure the story where they could still keep Rodan mysterious to the rest of the characters Yeah, without throwing in this Yeah, without keep the mystery going just a little bit longer. So they had to do this amnesia thing instead of him escaping
0: after having seen it and then just completely recalling the event to them in a sort of bland kind of way and so instead they did the amnesia thing
1: yeah I just I don't know it, it didn't quite work for me
0: one of the books that we were looking at a book that talked about Rodan is a representation of the Soviet Union
1: which at first we
0: didn't quite understand I'm not totally sure if I if I'm getting it completely now, but I'm going to at least take a stab at it. This movie was released in 1956. And during 1956, Japan was uh, finally allowed to enter the United Nations. Now, the reason why they couldn't have gotten in earlier was because the Soviet Union, who had veto power on the Security Council, they were holding Japan's UN membership hostage so that Japan would normalize relations with the Soviet Union as a condition of receiving UN membership. I think possibly that story being prominent in the news, that might've been an indication of, I think that might be where this is coming from. I'm not exactly sure how the Soviet Union somehow equates to a giant flying Pteranodon that I, I, (laughs) I don't know if it's supposed to be direct. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it is, Maybe it's the Soviet Union using spy planes on Japan to possibly spy on the American military bases or on South Korea. Who knows? But, I mean, it does kind of make sense that if the Soviet Union had any kind of supremacy over Japan in a military aspect between land, sea, and air, you'd think it would be air, wouldn't it?
1: That would make sense. I hadn't thought of it that way. I
0: Again, <laughs> that, that, that I'm just taking a stab at it. But... I don't. I don't think there's anything that's supposed to be super overt in the movie about the Soviet Union, but that's the the best thing that I can think of.
1: Well, and it didn't help that the you know the book we were looking at didn't really explain the reasoning behind how Rodan is supposed to be representative of the Soviet Union either. It's just it's just a statement that just gets dropped in there.
0: And I don't know. I mean, it seems like that the Soviet Union was holding. Japan's UN membership hostage. Now, I, I'm not sure if that relates to the Rodans holding Japan hostage. You know, with their actions. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing to discuss, though. I'm not really sure how it all comes together with with Rodan, if it, even if even if it does. And and no, the book didn't really tell us about the actual connection there. It was just stated that Rodan was supposed to represent the Soviet Union. Without knowing the historical context of what was going on in that year, I don't know how you could conclude that
1: otherwise. Yeah, I don't know either. I have my doubts, though, about it. If it is, it was subconscious, because Kimura was a much more straightforward sort of writer. This concludes the opinion and discussion portion of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
0: Our related topics in this episode include Japan's role in the Korean War and Japan's role in the United Nations. First, we'll do the Korean War. During most of the Korean War, we were in the situation where Japan was under occupation still because the occupation didn't end until 52. One of the immediate things that occurred was a power vacuum that occurred after the invasion of South Korea by the North first it engendered a response in the United States that we can't let this happen because that would lead to a domino effect of communism taking over other small countries in the world. And so it was looked at by the American administration that the situation has to be dealt with somehow by the military and there has to be a response to this. Once American forces got involved in the Korean War under the auspices of the UN, this was an issue because when the American military forces went in there, they left Japan pretty much unarmed and unprotected in a very dangerous part of the world. And this was one of the big things that's the reason why MacArthur and the United States had the
1: JSDF created. It was meant to fill the vacuum that was being left by the American forces that were leaving Japan to go to Korea.
0: And this was a really pacifistic time in Japan, too. It was right after the war and under the occupation for the most part. And there was a very large portion of the Japanese public that were pacifist and they did not want to get sucked into World War III. That was a big concern at the time the people had to make a decision as a, a country about what do we do and it really helped to jumpstart Japan's thinking regarding the Cold War. It eventually it, it helped to cement Japan as a US ally, but also it helped them to understand a little bit more about communism and what their goals were in the region. And Japan had to realize that, well, okay, we are obviously not part of this communistic vision until we do a lot of things that are along the lines of communist revolt. Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida, he realized something really important about the Cold War. And he said, as long as Japan remains a peaceful democratic state, no matter what we do to try to convince them, we will not be able to satisfy the communist powers. He said, the only thing that can protect us from the violence of communism is the strength of the solidarity of democratic states. Thus, we can only choose to proceed along one of two roads. In other words, do we give up the democracy we have achieved in our nation and submit to the communist world, or do we build a peaceful democratic Japan based on the security produced by cooperating to the fullest degree possible with the international allies? We must choose between these. The struggle for democracy in the Korean peninsula is none other than the struggle to defend Japan's democracy. And so this really encapsulates this, the situation that Japan found itself in. However, at the same time, the pacifist reaction to these sentiments was not very positive. Because the, the goal of the pacifists in Japan was to not have a military. In other words, have the military gone and at the same time Make peace with the Communists in the region in order to ratchet down the conflict. However, this ended up being pitched against just reality in general, because the Soviets and the Chinese Communists weren't going to just bend and cave into whatever Japan wanted to have their concerns addressed about this. This, is, this wasn't the dynamic. And so there was a reaction by the pacifists in Japan against the alliance that the United States had with Japan at the time, and which would be renewed in about a decade or so, almost, after the initial one was signed. This was also a big time for Japan because they realized that they had to rely on outside military help in the form of the United States military having bases there, and that that was the only way that they were going to really be protected. Even with the self-defense force, they knew that the self-defense force would not be enough. However, there were those in Japan who resented having to rely on the United States for that kind of defense because they felt that they were being pushed too close to another country that you know, wouldn't allow them to make their decisions on their own. This idealism of wanting to have a free, demilitarized country, that idealism started to run into some really big roadblocks And the occupation wasn't even over yet. One of the other big things that the Korean War did was because of massive United States military spending in Japan for supplies for the troops, that made the Japanese economy, it was like a, it acted as a massive economic stimulus to the Japanese economy, which helped bring them out of the post-war inflation and the bad economic growth figures. And so by the end of the Korean War, Japan was well on its way to getting an economy that was better than before the war started.
1: The Americans were pouring a lot of money into Japan when it came to things like getting supplies, or they were employing Japanese citizens uh, you know, as workers for things that they needed done. And Japan was also a very popular recreation spot for for American soldiers who are on leave. <laughs> I have distinct memories of watching reruns of MASH, and they always talk about going to Tokyo where they can go have a good time.
0: And then Japan also increased the amount of workers in the Merchant Marine, and, and they acted as help to the American soldiers that were in the region Another effect that the Korean War had on Japan was that it separated Japan from the rest of East Asia even more than it was already. And that was the fact that China was still belligerent and was named as a, you know, an aggressor in the Korean War. And that brought Japan closer to the United States economically as well, because not only were they relying on the United States for defense, but also the United States economy was putting so much power economically into Japan and helping them revitalize their country. And by 1955-56, which is when Rodan came out, the economy in Japan was already booming past previous high levels that were before the war. And so this economic interdependence, even though there is such a huge distance between Japan and the United States geographically, the connection between those two economies became much stronger. And it got Japan to support the idea of containment, which is to just obviously contain communism as much as possible in the region because Japan, by this point, realized that further expansion of communism is a negative thing for their nation on the whole.
1: Yeah, that was the standard practice and ideology, I guess you could say, of the United States at the time. One of the biggest threats
0: in all of East Asia is definitely in the form of North Korea. Korea has always been a geographic location that is a little bit of a problem to Japan because of the such such a close proximity between Korea and Japan. Nearly everything that happens there is going to have some kind of an effect on Japan, positive or negative.
1: And now we'll move on to the history of Japan's involvement with the UN. Japan actually joined the United Nations on December 18th, 1956, which was just over a week before Rodin was released, actually, because Rodan was released in Japan on December 26th. Japan saw the United Nations as an organization that embodied their new pacifistic ideals and as a guarantee of their country's neutrality, while others saw it as a means of masking their country's dependence on the United States. But overall, there was huge public support for joining the U.N.,
0: the Japanese have used their role in the United Nations to show that they want to participate in the international community in a very positive way. The SDF's first deployment with the UN was in September 1992 to Cambodia and later to Mozambique, the Golan Heights, and Haiti. Since then, Japan has deployed over 12,000 personnel
1: in 28 UN missions. Now, they originally did this, they've been wanting to get involved for a while. And this was actually brought about because of the Gulf War. They had wanted to to support the U.S. and their efforts in the Gulf War militarily, but because of the Constitution, they weren't allowed to. But they did give $13 billion worth of financial aid. Then in 1992, the Japanese government passed a law that allowed the SDF to participate in UN peacekeeping missions. And this was passed by the LDP, which was in power at the time, as well as two opposing parties, which was Komeito and the uh, Democratic Socialist Party. Despite the fact that they are allowed to participate, because of Article 9, there are five principles or conditions that have to be met in order for them to send their forces over there. And those conditions include 1 a ceasefire shall have been reached among the parties to the conflict 2 the parties to the conflict including the territorial states shall have been given their consent to the de- to the deployment of the peacekeeping force and Japan's participation in the force 3 the peacekeeping force shall strictly maintain impartiality not favoring any party to the conflict 4 Should principles 1 through 3 cease to exist, Japan may withdraw its contingent. And 5, the use of weapons shall be limited to the minimum necessary to protect SDF personnel. Japan has
0: participated in 14 peacekeeping missions, 5 humanitarian relief operations, and 9 election observation operations. Japan has also made in-kind contributions to 27 UN operations, donating supplies including tents, radios, TVs,
1: medicines, jerry cans, and even ammunition. In March 2017, the Abe administration withdrew all of their SDF forces from their latest UN mission, which is in South Sudan. This marked the first time in 21 years that Japan had no personnel participating in any UN operations. Abe uh, said he's doing this uh, under the banner of proactive pacifism and is seeking other ways that Japan can contribute to international cooperation. However, demand is high for Japan to resume participation.
0: This is doubly disappointing given that according to the public opinion survey on foreign affairs conducted by the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs Cabinet Office, Approximately 80% of people surveyed support Japan's participation in U.N. peacekeeping operations. Reforming the United Nations has been a very, very, very slow process, and basically nothing has actually come to fruition out of that. Between 1955-56, when Japan was barely coming out of the occupation, between then and now, a lot of things have changed. Japan is, for a while there, was the second largest economy in the world. Now they're the third largest economy in the world. They still don't have a standing military, which is one of the biggest things that a country can use to say, look, we need a bigger role in the UN because our troops can, we can project this much power with our military. There has been a lot of resistance to the idea of Japan getting a permanent seat on the un security council and it was been it has been through the g4 system that they have been proposing that there be
1: four new countries to the un security council permanently which currently is comprised of five nations china the united states russia the united kingdom and france there are, there's also a handful of other nations that periodically are added and subtracted as non-permanent members of the Security Council.
0: The G4 countries are Germany, Japan, India, and Brazil. And these are four countries that have a lot of power, especially if you add them together together. Two of the countries have a high population and are in very strategic parts of the world. And then the other two countries are countries that have a lot of economic power and seem to be, you know, they were left out in the creation of the United Nations Security Council because they had just lost the war. Between then and now, a lot of things have changed. Lately, there's been a lot of opposition to Japan gaining a permanent seat on the UN Security Council by South Korea and China. They mostly say that Japan needs to atone more for its actions during World War II, and that's basically the only argument that they have right now.
1: However, the th- at least three of the other member, uh, permanent members on the Council are all for Japan joining, and that's the United States, the UK, and France. Yeah, so
0: it's like, at what point can the U.N. change from, you know, the winners of World War II making all the decisions versus including other countries that are obviously very important powers now?
1: Honestly, I find this treatment of Japan to be terribly unfair because Japan is the second biggest contributor to the U.N. budget. They give 11 percent of the U.N. total budget They're second only to the United States, who gives 25%. I think it's pretty clear that Japan loves the United Nations.
0: I think because Japan doesn't have a large military presence, and that therefore means that they don't contribute to the security snapshot of the world, so to speak. And then that has resulted in Japan being kind of sidelined. At the United Nations and stalled by other countries in the region who don't want them to have a, a permanent seat on the Security Council, and I think it's because Japan contributes a lot, but they aren't contributing to the military aspect of it enough. At least, I'm not sure what is going to have to give in order to to fix that situation. But I, I think it is. Uh, I think definitely it's exasperating to some of the Japanese because they they do have a high opinion of the UN, but they just aren't being let in enough. Yeah, I think they've been sidelined on the international relations part because they you know, they hit the ceiling pretty early as far as their involvement in the UN and and their willingness, but I, I think it's that from a security standpoint, they don't have a huge army and they don't have nukes. And therefore that has allowed the UN to say, oh, well, you know, by that estimation, you don't contribute enough to the security environment and therefore you're not allowed to be one of the powers at the table. There are a few instances in the Godzilla movies where the UN shows up. One of them is in the 1968 film, Destroy All Monsters. It's primarily because the UN runs Ogasawara Island. Mm -hmm. It's like a UN mandate or whatever, but yeah. There's also a depiction of the UN in the 1993 film during the Heisei period of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. Mainly, it's a way for Japan to kind of channel their multinational sort of cooperation through. It didn't take long after the occupation ending for Japan to really start experiencing the new world that they found themselves in. Primarily, it would be the first war that took place during the Cold War era, meaning the Korean War, plus joining the United Nations as as a new vehicle for Japan to join the international community. And so these two topics really dovetail with each other quite well, and it's uh, both of these issues were going on at, right at the time this movie was being created and released. Things were very busy as soon as the—I mean, under the occupation was when the Korean War began— and so it wasn't a very long respite of peace in East Asia after the war ended. And so Japan had to find their way in, in this new Cold War era, and they had, they had to find their footing relatively quickly. Our next episode will be 1961's Mothra, or Mosura.
1: If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook.
0: Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music. www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us
1: on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!